Right, good morning. Uh, thanks for starting the new year at Horizon. My name is John Kirby. I'm the Connections Pastor at Horizon, and I want to invite Dick and Ann Satterfield up. Um, these 10 weeks, we're, as a church, looking at the Gospel of Luke, and we're calling it um, Startup. So we thought it would be kind of interesting to look at the startup of Horizon. And Dick and Ann are actually um, part of the plant team that helped to start Horizon. Now, today's like our anniversary of our first service here in this building was January 2011. Our, our public launch was April, was Easter, April 15th of 2001. So we're talking, what, 17 years ago? But you guys were there before then. You guys were in the beginning before the beginning. So tell me how you got called in the late 90s, I think it was, to, to be a part of Horizon. Yeah, it was 1999. Actually, it was one of those moments where you can look back and say, God's timing is perfect. And oftentimes I don't see that, and yet we know that it is. Maybe we'll find out in heaven. But that particular case, it was Easter of 99. We're going to a church that we loved. Um, we loved the people. We loved the pastor. And that particular Easter Sunday... We were in the service, and I kept falling asleep. I didn't know what was wrong. I, I loved the service. I loved the pastor. I couldn't figure out why I kept falling asleep. Now, we think might have been that we had two-year-old triplets. In fact, two of the triplets are not two anymore. They're over there. One of them is about six foot six. The they still keep nine. you awake yeah. and lose yeah. sleep. They still so keep you awake, though. he was convinced that was the reason I was falling asleep. But God kept urging me that, you know, while this is a wonderful church, we're supposed to take what we have that's so important to us, our faith, and share it with others and invite them in a nice, comfortable way that they can grow in their faith. And so I kept telling Dick this over and over again for the next month, which he kept thinking, I've just, you know, lack of sleep. You have triplets. It'll go away. Don't worry. So I got a phone call from actually a high school friend of Ann's, and he laid out this vision for this new church that he wanted to start on the east side of Cincinnati here. And it was designed to reach those people who had kind of become disenfranchised with church. So he was really a talkative guy. So I'm listening and listening and listening. And he's laying out this vision. At the end of it, he said, I'd like you and Ann to pray about whether you'd like to be involved with part of this plant. So I got off the phone and Ann said, who is that? And I told her who it was. And she said, what's he talking about? And I laid it out for Ann. And Ann said, well, do you want to pray about it? I said, well, we don't need to pray about it. Now, you've got to listen to this carefully. I said, I said we're really happy. And she said to me, we're really happy or you're really happy. And so, you know, the rest of the story. Compromise. No, we prayed about it and you finally got there, but he was a little slow. But I will tell you, I do think that in every sacrifice, God always rewards you. And our closest friends, both of us, are the people that were on the plant team and the people now here at this church. So um, it was clear. But... What was really interesting about the thing was the next night, then the gentleman came over and did a gift, or I guess next week, did a gift assessment test to figure out where our skills might match to help the church out. So lots of questions that you answered, like on tons. Paper. I mean, it took okay. like an hour and a half. Okay. And then the next night, he showed up and shared what he felt that we should be appropriately fitted for, and he wanted me to be the initial on the initial initial marketing team and then on the executive board. Right, which you've served on for years. Mm-hmm. Aren't you interested with they want to meet Yeah, well, what about you, Dick? <laughs> okay. So remember we were doing these in, in high schools, and so part of what you had to do was you had to make sure that the classrooms looked the same after the Sunday school class. They called that the breakdown team. 
So I have to say, I thought his job would be much bigger, but he seemed to really like it. And actually, when we moved in here, you still say you missed the breakdown. I missed the breakdown. So we had to schlep in in these six-foot-tall, six-foot-long, two-foot-wide black bins, rolling bins. We went to Country Day. We had to keep all our stuff in the parking lot, move it in. In the ice and the cold, like a day like today, we had to move it in. This is a tough day today. Set up all the chairs. (laughs) So you were part of that glorious team. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. God used my talents. (laughs) <laughs> so I had kind of heard about the church and, and heard, well, you can't visit it. That was before it went public. I was like, what do you mean you can't visit it? But before you went public, no one was allowed to come. You were trying to, you had like a goal of getting like maybe 125 people, I understand now, before you launched. You were trying to come up with a name. But tell us about the early days, how you came up with the name and the vision and the culture. Well, what was really interesting was uh, at the very beginning, when it, there were probably about 25 of us, we would start meeting at the founder's house for church, and we had this makeshift children's program, and we'd have praise and worship, and Kenny would be there, and it was incredible. Kenny um, with the long hair down to his... Yes, yeah, I don't know head. if they're showing those pictures, yeah. but yes, he's had a drastic haircut since then. Yeah. Um, and then we ended up at that 25, we then uh, rented Indian Hill High School, and our goal was to get approximately an additional 100 people so that we'd have enough manpower to open the doors and have people out in the parking lot and the greeting team and the children's program and all that. So at that point, we started inviting other people whose faith was important to them that they would also be interested in being a part of this. But other people who weren't involved in church but would like to go to the church, ultimately, we kept saying, we're so excited, we have to wait till we do the grand opening. This will be great. Right. And you weren't allowed to invite anybody who was active at another church to the grand opening. You did all personal invitations. And yes. you know, my yes. draw to come to Horizon was, you know, I was at a church where most of the people already believed. And, and I heard that like half the people you had were like, hadn't been to church in 20 years. So I was like, how did you make a priority to make them feel welcome? How did that work to, to get them here in the first place and to make them want to come back the second week? Do you want me to take this one? Yeah. Okay. So, She's um, on the executive board. <laughs> no. No. So uh, we, from the very beginning, we felt that God, this is God's church. This isn't our church. And that we wanted it to be ex- inviting, not ex- exclusive. So we did a market research study initially at the very beginning where we hired a company that called 250 families in the Marymount Terrace Park in Indian Hill area to try to figure out why are people not going to church yeah. or why did they go and they're not going anymore. And it was really revealing. I mean, it showed more times than not, it was an individual or it was the church itself that had them turn off against religion, or maybe they've never gone because their family never went. And what were those things, those stumbling blocks that caused them not to. And today the programming, the building, everything you touch here is almost a direct reflection from that market research study that hopefully helps you to feel comfortable in exploring your faith. Yeah. And I know Part of the tension that we continue with today is people always want to say, okay, but we're here and we've grown, so we want it to be more about us and give us the best time, but we continue to want to try to keep, at least for the 10, 11, 10, there for like somebody who hasn't been to church in 20 years, that neighbor that you were first excited about inviting, and I assume you still have new neighbors now that you invite. Yes. Well, we even had rules when we were at Country Day before we moved, I guess, yeah, at Country Day before we moved here, that the plant team would have to park in the least desirable parking lots that were far away 
the slots so that the guests could park closer to the building and that we would have to sit down in the bottom of the auditorium, which was less desirable, to make it more comfortable. It was everything about making it more comfortable and more attainable for other people. Even the time slot, we gave the 10 o'clock time slot rather than the 8.50 time slot to guests coming to church to make it, and hopefully you feel that way. Yeah, well, that's awesome. So uh, thank you for coming up and sharing a little bit of that. Dick and Ann, can we thank them? So as I said, we're going through 10 weeks of Luke and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're looking at Luke's gospel. And God chose Luke to write the gospel. He, he was a, a doctor. He was, came at it from a very kind of scientific, investigative, very detail-oriented. And you really see that as you read Luke's gospel. And ideally, we would have loved to start today with um, having Luke here. But obviously, he wrote this in 60-something A.D. But we did the best we can. We'd really like to have Luke hear it from his voice. Well, greetings. It's good to have you here this morning. I, I, I'll be right with you. Grab a seat in the waiting room. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I'll be with you next. Yeah, uh-huh. I finished it up, actually. Uh-huh. Great. Well, I'm Dr. Luke. Many call me the beloved physician. Where did I do my residency? Well, at the Temple of Asclepius, of course. Here at the Temple of Asclepius, we, uh, we have temples to Zeus and Apollo and Demeter and Dionysus. But it actually, down here in the valley where I did my residency is the actual Temple of Asclepius. You can even visit the ruins today in your modern-day Turkey. We have a sprawling campus, and this is where modern medicine was born. You see, we rejected the Greek religious myth that all sickness was caused by angering the gods requiring sacrifice. We even rejected Plato's view that doctors were supposed to protect the society over the individual. Instead, we practiced Hippocrates' view, that the individual mattered. And he had diagnosed and dissected many cadavers to discover how the human body worked. So here on our campus at our sprawling facility, we have a theater at the north corner where every day our theater teams perform both a comedy and a tragedy because we find when people laugh and cry, their body heals itself better. We have a gymnasium. We teach people how to eat right. We teach people how to work their bodies out to be in shape. And lastly, we experiment with medicines, plants, vegetation, even some bark. In fact, the bark and the trees in this area even today are found to have the components of what you know as modern-day medicine. This is truly where modern medicine was born. In fact, Asclepius, where the temple's built here, you may recognize his staff with the snake coil. That's the symbol of modern doctors and hospitals even today. So I was a man of science, a business owner, and certainly not a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Jesus. But many of my patients would come in and speak about a different type of God. Unlike our many gods of the Greek Romans, they talked of one God. He was a person, not an energy like the Eastern religions, but this God was always the source of good versus our gods, Zeus and others. They struggled with lust and hatred and self-centeredness, but their God was always, always the focus and source of goodness. So I began to attend their synagogues, investigating, Checking it out, asking questions. 
fact, they call me a, a God-fearer, one who investigates. And I remember learning about Abraham, Isaac, the prophets, and through a many-year study, I began to ask questions. And I became a believer in this God of the Bible, and I would eventually become a believer in the God who sent Jesus. Who would have thought that a man of science, a man who grew up with the myths of Zeus and, and Apollo, would end up becoming a believer in Jesus? And I got a chance to travel with the Apostle Paul. And I've always been a note taker, very detailed, so I actually got to interview the people he healed, and I had a lot of questions about the healing. I, I interviewed all of the skeptics, the soldiers, the crowds, the, the Sanhedrin. I even got a chance to go back and investigate and talk to the shepherds, and even Mary herself. And who would have thought that a Greek, non-Hebrew, man of science, would write most of what you know as the New Testament, Luke and eventually Acts? But I, I have another friend, and he's investigating the same journey I've been on. His name is Theophilus. And so I'm writing him an account. And, and though many have set out to put together an orderly account, a narrative account, because I had a certain awareness of being there, talking to those who had been there, I set out an orderly account for my friend Theophilus that he might know the certainty of the things that happened. See, he wanted to know who was Jesus, and did re he really do the things that people say he did and how did the Roman Empire get turned upside down but Jesus had this way of comfortably connecting people to God through the Bible and this this community of, of Christ followers and the same way that synagogue had taught me of the God of Abraham where Judaism began with 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 Abraham and Sarah a barren couple who trusted in God my account begins in a very similar way See, Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were barren, and they had given up hope of having children. Zacharias was serving as a priest in the temple, and the lot fell to him that day to offer sacrifice in the holy place. As he went in, the crowd I interviewed said that he took longer than normal. They were awaiting to get on with worship that day, and eventually he came out, and he looked like he'd seen a ghost, and he couldn't speak. So instead, he tried to communicate with what you might call charades. You having a baby? And they say he didn't speak for, for, for nine months. But nine months later, a baby was born to this couple. And they returned to the temple to have him dedicated. And the crowd that was with them, the friends and community, said, What will you name him? Will you name him uh, the son of Zacharias? Zacharias? He, he pulled out a tablet and he wrote, His name shall be John. And he began to speak again. And he spoke of God appearing to him in the holy place that day and saying that he was going to have a son that was going to be like the, the pre-launch to the launch, the, the one preparing for the start of the God had in plan. And his name would be John. Well, Zacharias said, I didn't believe, and I asked for a sign, and the sign was that I wouldn't speak for nine months until I named him John. But during their pregnancy, in the sixth month, God also appeared to a woman named Mary. And he said, Hail! Highly favored one, rejoice, rejoice, for you have found favor with God. To which Mary said, what, what, what kind of a greeting is this? 
And the angel said, you have found favor with God and you will give birth to a son and his name shall be Jesus. How could this be? I've never even been with a man. The Almighty shall overshadow you and you will give birth birth to a king and that king will have a kingdom that goes on for eternity. The days came for Mary to give birth. She was betrothed to Joseph, and they made their way to Bethlehem because of the census. When they arrived, there was no room for them in the inn, and so they gave birth to that child in a manger because there was no room for them. Now, at the same time, there were, there were shepherds living out in the fields by, by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of God shone all around them, and a voice said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For born to you this day in the city of Bethlehem is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign to you. You will find a baby lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. See, these were the shepherds that raised the sheep for sacrifice, and only a perfect sheep could be used to sacrifice at temple. And so when the shepherd found a perfect, blemish-free lamb, they would wrap it in swaddling clothes. A reminder, this was a perfect lamb that would eventually die for the sins of others. Which is why when they came and found a baby with swaddling clothes, it was a sign to them that God was about to launch the startup then predicted for hundreds of years But before the launch is a pre-launch. And so John, the son of Zechariah, he became the one who brought about the pre-launch. And and he was about 30 years old at the time when he gathered at the baptism to to baptize people the Jordan River. Now, if you've never met John, he's uh, eccentric. He, He wears a coat made of camel hair. And he loves to snack on locusts. And he's fiery words. He had his, he has the harshest words to say against the religious people of the day. He gathered Jordan River and said, Hypocrites! You brood of vipers! Who told you to flee the wrath to come? I tell you to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You say to me, we have Abraham as our father, but I tell you, God could turn these stones into children of Abraham. I am not the Christ. I am the voice calling out in the wilderness, make straight your ways. I baptize with water, but the one that comes after me will baptize with, 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 with fire and the Holy Spirit. Behold the Lamb of God. At 30 years old, Jesus made his way down into the water. And he too was baptized. As he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven spoke. Now I know, I know. You're thinking... I want you to believe this is a historic account and voices are speaking from heaven. All I can tell you is that all of the eyewitnesses, hundreds of people there I witnessed and interviewed, said these were the words that were said. This is what they saw that day. 
a voice from heaven spoke and said, This is my beloved son, whom I love and am well pleased. And as Jesus came up out of the water, he was about to launch this startup, this new kingdom, this new message. But before every startup, there's an exhibition. When do you go public? How do you go public? And he went public as the one who was going to take on the forces of evil and darkness to start by saying, I can go mano de mano in an exhibition match against the very source of deception and evil himself. And so the spirit led him out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he came face to face with the devil himself, the source of temptation, the source of evil, the source of darkness. And it was mano de mano, one on one, back and forth. And the devil came at him and, and, and questioned his identity, used his desires, his 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 indulgences his desire to eat against him he offered him the kingdoms of this world and each time jesus said it is written you shall not live by bread alone and it is written you shall not tempt the lord your god and satan scurried off to tempt him at a new opportune time and now having established the claim support that he could take on the very source of darkness he began to speak of the kingdom he began to heal people he even healed someone of leprosy. We'd never seen anyone healed of leprosy back in Pergamum. I interviewed his family. I interviewed his friends. Was it really leprosy? How long did he have it healed of leprosy? He even healed a woman who would turn out to be the apostle Peter's mother-in-law. Which explains why as, as Jesus began to pray about recruitment and getting the right team for this startup... He asked God who should be on the team. And God directed him to Peter, Simon. He came to him and Peter immediately left his nets and came and followed him because he'd already seen the impact of Jesus' work on his own family. Jesus began to gather not only the disciples and the team, but huge crowds came to hear him teach. So much so that one time he gathered over 5,000 people by the Sea of Galilee. It was here at the Sea of Galilee, everyone was seated, and Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and spoke the vision and the values of this new kingdom when he said, blessed are you, blessed are you who are poor, poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who thirst, for you will be filled. And blessed are you who mourn. You will laugh again. And blessed are you when men hate you, exile you, revile you, and cast you out for my name's sake. Leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. For just your fathers did to the prophets as well. But woe, woe, woe unto you who are rich, conceited, think you have all the resources in this life for what you need. For I tell you the truth, you have received your consolation. Woe unto you who think you're full, for you will be empty. Woe unto you who laugh at the pleasures only of this world, for you will weep and wail. Woe unto you when men always speak well of you, 
For your fathers always spoke well of the false prophets. But I say to you, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What I say is, love your your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Someone slaps you on one cheek, offer them the other. Someone takes your coat, give them your tunic as well. Someone takes your goods from you, don't even expect them in return. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you likewise. Do you only love those who love you? What credit is that? Everybody does that. Do you only do good to those who do good unto you? What credit is that? Uh, Even sinners do that. Do you lend to those always expecting something in return? What credit is that? Even sinners do that. No, no, I tell you to lend to others expecting nothing in return. Even hoping for nothing in return. That great will be a reward in heaven. You, You will be like sons of the most high God who is kind to the un thankful he's merciful to the evil judge not lest you be judged condemn not lest you be condemned forgive and it will be forgiven to you give and it will be given back to you It will be poured out, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. The same measure you give to others, God will give unto you. Can the blind lead the blind and not they end up in a ditch? What I tell you, love your enemies. And having set the values for this new movement... Jesus began to make predictions about dying and coming back and parables and teachings and predictions. Yet all of it culminated in one final week, one final moment, one final hour. What was amazing is that Jesus didn't just preach a sermon that day. He lived that sermon as he trained them for three years. And that sermon culminated in that last hour, in that last week, in that last moment. As was his custom, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He took his disciples with, and he told them to to stay and to pray that they would not fall into, fall into temptation. He then went about a stone's throw away and he fell to his knees. Peter, James, and John all told me that until they fell asleep, they heard these words over and over and over again. Father! Dad! Father! If you're willing, if there's any other way, Father, if you're willing, please, please. 
take this, take this cup from me. Dad, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He then made his way back to his disciples and they had fallen asleep. He awakened them and said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. In that moment, a crowd gathered, led by Judas. Judas came up to Jesus, kissed him on the cheek. Jesus turned, looked in the face of a friend, a disciple, a business partner. He said, Judas, will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? The soldiers took him from the garden and brought him before Pilate, where the chief priest in the Sanhedrin said, He perverts our nation. He tells us not to pay our taxes. He says he's a king. We only have a king that's Caesar, Pilate. Pilate examined him and asked him, Are you the king? It, it is as you say. He continued his examination. I find no fault in this man, nothing worthy of death. I'll bring him before the people. As is our custom on your Jewish Passover feast, I will release to you one man, Jesus of Nazareth, of whom I find no fault, or Barabbas, the murderer. By then the chief priests had actually gotten to the crowd, bribed many of them, who began to whisper, Barabbas, 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 give us Barabbas. Then what shall I do with this Jesus? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate sent him off to be chastised and crucified. I left the details out of my account on his scourging, because many of you have seen the scourgings of the Romans before. They would take a prisoner and tie up his hands, hoist him up on a pole so his skin was taunt. A soldier would have a whip with 40 lashes, each laced with a piece of glass or pottery or steel, and 40 times he would be lashed. And the glass and steel would dig into the flesh. With every pull back, the soldier would rip out chunks of the prisoner. After 20 lashes, you could see veins and muscle, even a little bone. It reminded me of the autopsies we performed. Only without the skill of a scalpel, it was like an autopsy done by a wild animal. And after 20 lashes, they had to flip him over. And they whipped him 20 more times. Mary told me that she watched. She watched her son beaten, ripped. She said there was nothing like it. 
Most men didn't survive the scourging, but Jesus wasn't like most men. He was forced to carry his cross up to Calvary. With the loss of blood, he collapsed under the weight of it. So Simon the Cyrene picked up his cross and walked with him to Calvary. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. The Romans have perfected crucifixion as the slow death. A spike is pounded, not into the hands that would rip through to hold your body weight, but between the two bones of the arm, right in the wrist where the nerve endings run. A spike was pounded into each of the hands. The body twisted and contorted, and another spike pounded through the heels into the beam. The noises that came out of a man on the cross were called excruciating, a word invented by the Romans meaning out of the cross kind of pain. It was ultimately death by suffocation. No man could speak loudly from the cross. You had to pull up and push up on those spikes to fill your lungs with enough air to breathe, and you eventually lost the strength, and you collapsed slowly, withering away until you died hours later. But Jesus pushed up on that spike and pulled up on those nails and pulled air into his lungs to say, Father! Forgive them, for they know not what they do. The chief priest mocked him, saying, "He saved others. Let him see, let us see him save himself." The soldiers cast lots for his clothes. They looked at him and said, If you're the king, get yourself down from your throne. The criminal to his left pushed up on that spike. Save yourself and us if you're the son of God, the Christ. The other criminal pushed up on that spike. Fear God. We are under we are under the same punishment, but we justly, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Pushed up on that spike one more time, pulled up on those nails one more time. <sighs> Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. <sighs> with that. The sky grew dark for three hours from the sixth to the ninth hour, and the veil 
between mankind and God in the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, rather than withering away and slowly sinking down, Jesus pushed up one more time, pushed up on that spike and pulled up on those nails, filling his lungs with not just a voice but a loud voice, not looking like a a criminal, not looking like a prisoner, not looking like a victim, no, like he was a, a conquering hero, like this is the moment he was born for, that this is what he, where he wanted to be, like a, a commander coming into a coliseum. He pushed up on those nails and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A Roman centurion who's seen thousands of people die had never seen a man die like this, calling his own death, calling out in a loud voice, victoriously calling from the the cross. He said, truly this was a righteous man. Joseph Arimathea, whom we all know, wealthiest man in Jerusalem, and Nicodemus, asked for the body. They took it down off the cross, carefully wiping the wounds. And they took that body and they laid it in a garden tomb. It was the first day of the week. Women came to the tomb with spices. They were going to anoint the body. But when they arrived, the, the, the stone had been rolled away, the guards were gone, and the tomb was empty. When they arrived, there were two men in shining garments there. They said, what have you done with the body? To which the man said, why do you look for the living among the dead? Do you not remember what Jesus told you when he was still back in Galilee? He told you that the Christ must suffer, must die, but then he would rise again. The women didn't believe. They actually ran to the home of the disciples who were all huddled together in fear and told them of these things. And the disciples didn't believe. They needed to investigate as well. So Peter and John ran to the tomb. John outran him. And and when they arrived, Peter stepped into the tomb and he was astonished. He was working it over, thinking it through. What does this mean? He thought the startup was over. He thought it was all finished. Who had taken the body? And he stepped into the tomb where he saw the linens folded there. And he marveled, wondering what this meant about the message and kingdom of Jesus. He and another were walking on the road to Emmaus, conversing, questioning these things, having a conversation when a stranger came from behind them saying, what kind of conversation are you guys having? About the things that have happened in Jerusalem. The stranger said, what things? Have you not heard about Jesus, the doer of miracles, the great teacher? He was crucified by the Romans, and, and now his body is missing. And they turned and looked at the stranger, who said, Foolish ones, slow to believe. It is I. And he opened the scriptures, those same scriptures I learned about so many years ago in synagogue. And he showed how Moses and the prophets and the writings all spoke of, of God coming to earth 
suffering, dying, and rising again. And they began to believe. Oh, Peter took three resurrection attempts. Uh, (laughs) Thomas needed a few questions answered himself. But each one of them began to investigate and deepen their own belief. Each one felt a calling to a new type of life, a new type of uh, purpose, a new type of love, a new type of forgiveness. Who would have thought that a Greek doctor would end up writing the scriptures? Who would have thought that Peter, a fisherman, would be an apostle? But see, all of us are just, just one call away. One call away to a whole new life and a whole new purpose. It reminded me of my years back in the Temple of Asclepius. We thought we invented the idea of holistic healing with that snake up on that staff. But I was reminded of the words of Jesus, who traced it before that to Moses. And said, just as Moses lifted up a bronze snake and put it on a staff, the people looked at that snake as a reminder of their own wrongdoing, that God could bring forgiveness and healing and hope into their life. Jesus said, so will I. As Moses lifted up that snake onto a staff, the Son of Man will be lifted up on a staff. And those who look to me and believe in me will find a new kind of life and a new kind of identity. Not only are each one of us one call away, it turns out that God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is just one call away as well. What we just experienced is the journey that our whole Horizon community is going to be going on for the next 10 weeks. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? How did Jesus lead and how did he raise leaders? What was it about Jesus that for every other business and startup that has failed throughout history, his startup, what we know as the church, has been changing lives for millennia and continues to change lives today? And what would it look like to be a part of his startup right here at Horizon? We're going to be taking that journey through all four of our weekend services. But did you know we actually have two very distinct service designs? The exploring service, the one that you're sitting in right now at 10 and 11.10 on Sundays, uses classic rock and modern music along with video and interviews to help us really explore who God is and what this life of Jesus is all about. We also have something called the equipping service at 4.30 on Saturdays and 8.50 on Sunday mornings. And that's a service where for those who think of themselves as followers of Christ, we're really digging deep, verse by verse, into the texts that we're going to be studying using powerful worship music that we sing to God. That's where we celebrate communion and the Lord's Supper, those kinds of things. Both services have a lot of life application, and through this series, all of the services are also going to have some of those behind-the-scenes moments of how Horizon started up and some of our history. And my history with Horizon only goes back a couple years. I don't know about you. This might be your first week at Horizon. But it's really cool to see some of what God has been doing throughout our years here as we're part of what Jesus started all of those years ago. Now, in addition to the weekend services, our team has also put together something we call a Pathway Study Guide. You may have seen those as you were coming in, and you can pick up a complimentary copy in the foyer outside the chapel, or you can also download it online. And don't worry if you picked one up today and you forget to bring it back, because that's really meant to be kind of an additional tool to take home and help you really dig deeper into applying the things that we're learning on the weekends. 
So you can use that for personal study at home, or you can also sign up for a startup study group. Again, you can sign up for those online or also at the registration booth, which is down the hall and around by the fireplace, where you can use those with other people to continue to, to dig deep and to explore what Jesus is all about. So did you get all that? I know that's a lot. So here's the summary. Two unique services for wherever you are at on this journey. A pathway study guide to help you dig deeper as you explore and study groups because, hey, it's fun to explore together. You know, whatever part of that journey you take with us, we just want to say that we are glad you're here because truly Horizon is yours to explore. So thank you for being here this weekend and hopefully we'll see you back next week for Startup. Thanks for coming.